Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in December in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. During December, as the sun sets and the skies begin to darken, the constellation of Taurus the Bull will rise over the eastern horizon, remaining visible throughout the night as it moves from east to west. The bright red star Aldebaran denotes the star at the eye of the bull and makes it easier to spot this star pattern. Shining bright in Taurus is the Pleiades, or Seven Sisters. Easily seen with the naked eye, even with some light pollution, this open cluster of hot blue young stars is actually a collection of hundreds of stars rather than just the seven visible with the naked eye. And this multitude of stars can be made out with a pair of binoculars or preferably a telescope. And as Taurus comes into sight, the constellation of Orion the Hunter follows closely behind. Another wonderful winter star pattern to feast your eyes on and your optics too. Mars still sits proudly in the southern sky in the early evening, a great naked eye target to look for as you wait for the skies above to darken. Its red colour should become notable as your eyes become dark adapted, but use even a moderate telescope and you can make out some of the darker and lighter patches on this rusty red coloured planet. Venus has been too close to the sun to be visible recently, but throughout December will continue to move towards its greatest western elongation, which it will reach in early January. This means it will become easier to spot and much brighter. Look towards the east in the early hours before the sun rises. This is what gives it one of its many nicknames, the Morning Star, as it is typically the last bright point of light visible before the sun rises. On the morning of the 3rd of December, Venus will sit beneath the waning crescent moon, and with the aid of the blue-white star Spica, the three will form a triangle shape above the southeastern horizon. And we are graced with one of the best annual meteor showers this month, the Geminids. Peaking on the night of the 13th and early morning of the 14th of December, wait until after midnight and scan the sky with just your eyes to spot a few of those shooting stars. This meteor shower is actually one of the few that shows good activity before midnight too. And although the meteors will appear to radiate out of the constellation of Gemini in the south, they can be seen all over the sky, and with a possible hourly rate of over 100 meteors, but that's in optimal viewing conditions, it's still well worth a look. And in the height of winter, it's important to wrap up warm. Head out to dark skies if possible, and take along a deck chair too. It's a lot of looking up. The Geminids are actually thought to be the product of the debris left behind from an asteroid rather than a comet. The denser rocky material from asteroid Phaethon produces slower meteors which appear to last longer. Another meteor shower, the Ursids, peak later in the month on December the 21st to the 22nd. But with a maximum hourly rate of 5 to 10 and the full moon present, conditions aren't particularly favourable. 
However, the 21st of December is still an important date in the astronomical calendar. It marks this year's winter solstice. On this day, the northern hemisphere has its maximum tilt away from the sun, and we experience the shortest hours of daylight and the longest hours of darkness. Appropriately, the December full moon is known as the cold moon, and it will appear the following evening, rising in the east around sunset and remaining visible throughout the night until just before the sun rises the next day. Now towards the end of the month, look out for the moon passing a few bright stars. If you can wait until after midnight, look towards the southeast and return at the same time over the next few nights. On the 26th or 27th of December, you can catch the moon beside Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. Then on the 29th, the moon will be in its last quarter phase. The terminator, or the boundary between the light and dark sides of the moon, will be clearly visible by this time. This is where the craters on the moon appear to stand out, so grab your binoculars or telescope to spot a few. But by the 30th, the moon will be near Spica, marking the bale of wheat held by Virgo the Maiden. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. Every month Dara and I choose a story each that's uh, dropped in the last month and we let you know all about it. And then you can vote for your favourite on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. So, Dara, what have you got for us this month? Well, I know either last podcast or the one before, you did a story all about spacecrafts and some of the, the, the missions that were happening or just updates on them. And this month, I found a whole host of different things related to Mars rovers. Mm -hmm. So I thought it'd be nice to do a bit of an oversight of some of the news that's come in. So I'm going to start with Opportunity. Uh, I know that you mentioned Opportunity last month. Um, Opportunity is one of the Mars exploration rovers. It was uh, one that landed back in 2004 with its twin spirit. The, the aims of these uh, rovers was to try and characterize the different types of rock that we find on Mars uh, that might hold clues to whether Mars was watery in the past or not. Now, Spirit, unfortunately, uh, back in 2010, its wheel got jammed in the soil. They mm. couldn't really rescue it. Uh, so they ended that mission. Um, but actually, both of these rovers were only supposed to last three months. So the fact yep. that it lasted six years, Spirit, yeah, is yeah, yeah. Uh, a feat of its own. Opportunity, though, kept going. Um, but this past summer, there was a huge dust storm on Mars. Um, and it had covered opportunity solar panels it wasn't receiving enough solar power to recharge its batteries so the scientists sent it into hibernation to protect itself but actually since june the 10th we haven't heard anything from it mm. um there's been a lot of kind of signal sending and waiting for transmission back from it and actually uh, early in november nasa posted that the dust storm had officially ended um so the atmospheric opacity the level of uh, dust in the air how clear it was had actually reduced to a storm-free level that was actually below typical seasonal values so the storm is well and truly over but there is still no contact from opportunity so they're they're remaining in this what they call uh active listening phase they're basically going to be uh continue trying to beep opportunity but listen back for some signals and they've proposed that they're going to do this until january oh. um 
So it's not the outright end to the mission, but it doesn't look like it's going to be successful. But fingers crossed, we've got a couple of months. Maybe the new year will bring a bit of new luck and hopefully we'll hear back from it. So from one part of bad news, we come to the next part of the story. And that is some good news about the Mars 2020 uh, rover launch. Um, So this is a probe that will be launched in July 2020, aimed at arriving in Mars uh, the following year in 2021. The primary goal of this mission is that it will actually collect samples that will eventually be returned back to the Earth in future missions. Um, So a bit of sample collection, keeping them there for a separate mission to hopefully bring them back later. Um, Like we kind of alluded to with the fact with opportunity, Mars may have been watery in the past. We think Mars may have had very similar conditions in the past to what we see on Earth today. Um, And Mars doesn't have... Uh, the kind of geological activity that the earth does so our land is constantly almost turned over it's changing Uh, we have water on the surface now that washes away artifacts mars doesn't have any water on the surface that we know of to wash away those things it doesn't have platonics so actually understanding the earlier kind of microbial life could be a lot easier to do on mars than it is on earth today Um, So the past four years, scientists have actually been trying to narrow down a landing site for this uh, rover. They had 60 potential landing sites and it's taken four years for them to narrow down to this just one, but they've finally done it. They have chosen the Jezero crater, which is just north of the Martian equator. It's about 45 kilometers wide and about 500 meters deep. Um, They believe this basin actually contained uh, a lake in the past, and that lake opened up to networks of rivers uh, three and a half to four billion years ago. Uh, This delta is a really good place for evidence to life to be deposited. Uh, The basin would uh, hopefully have collected some of the deposited uh, microbes or any sort of life that was there. Um, And that life may have been now kind of stored or preserved in some of the rocks The rocks that they're very interested in are clays and carbonates, Mm. which both form in the presence of water. Water, Um, So hopefully with some of these clues, uh, they might be able to find out whether Mars may have been a habitable place in the past and possibly even signs of preserved life from those billions of years ago. That would be fantastic. Now, when it arrives in Mars 2021, it will use the same landing method that Curiosity did. Do you remember how it landed? (laughs) Yes, I definitely do. I did not think it was going to work. (laughs) Well, so Curiosity landed using that sky crane, um, just literally being lowered down into the crater itself, a huge feat as well. Um, Curiosity kind of did a similar thing it landed down in this kind of crater the gale crater it had uh kind of layers of sediment that we think might have been from a lake in the past um but actually this site is slightly different it's Mm. rich in those carbonates and clays and that's what makes it really interesting for what they're trying to find out the early habitability uh, habitability of mars instead um So there's a little bit of the update on Mars 2020. They have decided a landing site. Now, I can only imagine the number of decisions they're going to need to make between now and the actual launch, um, which will probably overshadow these in the long sight. But um, really interesting to find that they've actually chosen a site that could be particularly interesting. Mm. The last part of my story um, is about InSight. 
Uh, yes. Now, as one space probe may be reaching its end, and the other one we've talked about, we've got a landing site. This third one is actually coming in to land in the next couple of days. Now, I should point out, we're recording our podcast um, on the 22nd, so uh, a few days from now, Monday the 26th of November, is when InSight is due to land on the surface of Mars. Now, InSight stands for Interior Exploration, using seismic investigations, Geodesy and heat transport. What a wonderful name. Yeah, they made the acronym fit, didn't they? Yes, they did. <laughs> now, the primary mission of this probe is to study the interior of Mars, yes. something that hasn't really been done before. It's going to be looking under the surface deeper than we've ever probed before. It's designed to last a full Martian year, so that's about two Earth years. Um, it's the first American mission to actually land since 2012, the Curiosity rover. Yes. Uh, it's going to be very similar to some of the older probes though. So it's got three legs, it's got a 1.8 meter arm, so six foot arm, and it's got two science experiments on board. But those science experiments aren't like uh, Curiosity where it's got a number of tools and instruments to sort of do things. They will literally be picked up by the arm and these two science experiments will be placed on the surface of Mars and InSight's not going to move, those experiments are not going to move, they're going to do their science as they are put down. So experiment one is going to actually penetrate five meters below the surface. Like that is an incredible depth to be going down to. It's got a self-hammering nail and it's got some heat sensors attached to it so it can probe the temperature under the surface too. Just to put that into perspective, the record currently for probing into uh, another celestial body actually was the the 2.5 meter drilling by the Apollo astronauts on the moon. Oh, yeah. So since then, this will be the deepest that hopefully mm. we have ever kind of probed on a different celestial body. And on, on Mars, I don't think we've gone deeper than a few inches. I it's think, I thought it was a few centimeters. Yeah, 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 it's not it's not made Curiosity for uh, detecting underground. No. This one specifically is. The difference here is that there are no life detectors on board. Mm. So InSight is not looking for signs of life. It's trying to find out more about the, the geology and the actual interior conditions on Mars. The landing. So we talked about Curiosity. It was lowered using a sky crane. Yes. Not happening in this case. No. <laughs> Spirit and Opportunity, if anyone remembers these, they landed inside big padded balls and sort of bounced onto the surface. Not doing that either. We're going back all the way to the Viking and Phoenix rovers. Yeah. So they used parachutes to kind of slow themselves down from the atmospheric entry. Uh, parachutes would be ejected and then they would rely on retro rockets or thrusters, a series of engine burns to actually slow them down enough and control them until they actually land on the surface. Now, I think this is probably the most difficult way to do it. You're still coming in at quite a speed mm -hmm. when you're using those retro rockets. But... It's worked in the past with the Viking rovers, the Phoenix rovers, so hopefully we'll have the same this time. But as mentioned, it's still quite scary. You might get parachutes tangling up. You may have a dust storm, so you're not receiving enough solar power. The leg on the rover could jam. Its arm could jam. Lots of things could potentially go wrong. But when it lands, fingers crossed, uh, the twin circular panels will sort of open outwards. And when it does this, the rover will, or the, the lander will actually occupy a space of about a large car. So it's a pretty big piece of kit. And it'll be about 10 weeks before the instruments start to be deployed and a few weeks after that when the probe buries into the surface of Mars. So we'll have to wait a while before we get anything back. But before it actually lands, it's got to 
it's got to tell us that it's landed successfully. So we're still waiting in that stage as it comes a couple of days from now. As it lands, this probe will actually send out radio signals back to the Earth and we will be listening for that information. It won't carry a lot of information, but actually just by listening to those radio waves, we can tell something about the entry, descent and landing stage. That's often known as EDL. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that can happen is when the parachute is deployed, you might get a change in the velocity Therefore, you get a change in the frequency of the radio waves. You get a Doppler shifting. Yes. So even though it's not carrying any information, just by looking at the frequency of those radio waves, we can tell whether a parachute has deployed or whether the next stage of the, the descent has gone uh, accordingly. So we can listen out for a few things. It will also send a signal when it lands. So this will be a very simple beep or a kind of I made it. Um, our radio telescopes on Earth will try and detect it. But then seven minutes later, it should actually send out another beep, but this time a more powerful one. And that's because it's, uh, it'll be using its X-band antenna. It will be pointed directly towards the Earth, and so it'll be a much stronger, louder, clearer signal. If we hear that, that's a good sign. It's landed, and it's, uh, it's actually managed to, to send that signal. Its solar arrays have actually extended outwards, so it's got some power, which is good. Um, what are the things we can do to listen out? Because that's what's going to be the main thing on Monday, just checking that it's landed safely. We can use our telescopes on Earth. So there's going to be the National Science Foundation's Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia and the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy uh, in Germany. Both of them will be relaying whatever information they have to JPL and also to engineers at Lockheed Martin Space in Denver, so in America. We can do that on Earth, but we've also got a few other bits up our sleeve in space. So one of the things that was sent along with InSight is the Mars Cube 1 or the Mars CubeSats. Oh yes, of course. So yeah. these are two briefcase sized uh, little spacecrafts that were flying behind InSight. They won't actually land, but they will kind of do a bit of a, a flyby. They'll carry on orbiting the sun, but they're going to attempt to relay data from InSight back to the Earth. Um, <laughs> I think appropriately, they're called Wally and Eve from the 2008 oh, movie Wally. Um, <laughs> these CubeSats are experimental technology, not something that's really been done before. Uh, so that in future missions, if we want to send home data about the entry, date, uh, descent, landing stages, this could be a technology that we use. The good thing about these is they provide near live feedback. Um, they're sending data from InSight back to the Earth. Um, if this doesn't work, we can still rely on uh, other Mars orbiters or even telescopes on Earth, but this will be the kind of first signal that we could possibly hear. Hmm. The other one we could use is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's an orbiter already going around Mars. The good thing about this one is it can actually hold data, um, record it during the entry, uh, descent and landing stage, but it will actually disappear over the Martian horizon before it can kind of sort of relay that all back to us. But when it gets back around the other side, it can actually play back all the data to the engineers. So although this is going to start kicking off around 8 p.m. our time here in the UK, by about 11 p.m. we should have a good idea of whether it's actually successfully landed or not by the time we get that data back. The last one we can use is the 2001 Mars Odyssey. This is Mars's longest lived spacecraft at Mars, and it will also relay data back to us uh, through the entire descent. And it may even capture some images and be able to confirm that the solar panels have actually uh, been deployed as well. So lots to look forward to. 
as mentioned, we still haven't uh, got confirmation that it's landing. We're going to hear that in a couple of days from now when we're recording. But today is actually Thanksgiving in the United States. So happy Thanksgiving to any of our friends listening over the pond. And we'll be hoping and praying that Insight actually makes a successful landing as well. So <laughs> we'll, we'll catch up with this in our December podcast for sure. I'm sure. In our January podcast. January podcast indeed. So, Greg, that was my little story about uh, some updates on some of the Mars rover past, present and future. What have you got to blow our minds this month? Well, Dara, this month I'm going to be talking about twins. Uh, the surest sign in a horror movie that the protagonist should have chosen a different sleepy village for their vacation. Right. Uh, but I'm not going to be talking about biological <laughs> twins or the, uh, the twins of our nightmares. No, I'm going to be talking about cosmic twins, the twins of stars. Hmm. Um, the process of star formation is fairly complicated. We still don't understand every part of it, but we do know the major stages. You start off with a vast cloud of hydrogen gas, molecular hydrogen gas, um, which are found all over the place in many different galaxies. Um, now, these clouds of gas on their own, they don't really do anything. As If nothing were to change, uh, they would be able to hold themselves up with their own gas pressure, just like we have the air pressure in the atmosphere of the Earth. So they can hold themselves from collapsing. But inevitably, of course, something does happen. Maybe they collide with another molecular gas cloud. Maybe uh, there's a supernova nearby. Uh, maybe there's a, an outflow from a nearby supermassive black hole. And if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to tick supermassive black hole off, off my lookup bingo card. But these things, these clouds of gas, they squash themselves down after this interaction, whatever it is, and they collapse under their own weight. So some sort of external force, whether an explosion, an interaction, a collision, causes these gas clouds to collapse. Yes. And as they begin to collapse down, they don't collapse into one single object. What happens is they fragment. Little bits of the gas cloud become dense enough to collapse under their own weight. So they fragment into smaller and smaller and smaller bits. Uh, so you can get thousands of fragments coming from a single cloud of gas. Each fragment keeps collapsing. As it does so, it heats up, uh, eventually reaching the point where the centre of this cloud of gas is hot enough to fuse hydrogen in its core, and that's the birth of a star. Voila, a new star is born. Absolutely. Now, this whole process, the whole thing from the gas cloud beginning to collapse to you ending with all of the star formation can take as little as... 10 million years, give or take. As little. I say as little, <laughs> absolutely. But it is little compared to the lifetimes of stars, which can be much, much longer, potentially tens, hundreds of billions, even trillions of years old. So 10 million years is basically nothing. Nothing. Which yeah. means that one single gas cloud collapsing down produces loads of stars, all produced at the same time. In other words, a single brood of stars. A family, you might think. Well, I'm thinking now more than twins if you've got a whole brood of, of stars being born at the Absolutely. same time. Absolutely. In fact, you've got lots and lots of them, brothers and sisters of, uh, of each star. question is, why do we care? All of these stars, if they were formed at effectively the same time and they were made from the same cloud of gas, so presumably they're made out of the same stuff, then any differences in those stars will be entirely due to how heavy they are, because heavier stars die quicker, so they evolve more quickly, um, and 
to and because of their environment. If they uh, encountered another star, if they were born in a binary system rather than a single system, these sorts of things will change their evolution. But not their age, because they're all the same age, and not their composition, because they're all the same composition. So if we manage to find an entire brood of stars, an entire family, then we can try to understand the evolution of stars by having them all be the same age. So this is like when we're doing a science experiment and you've got your control. The control here is they're all the same age, they're yes. all the same composition. We're just now looking for what are the differences make exactly. a difference to these stars. Yes, absolutely. For a more uh, personal viewpoint from our own sun's perspective, uh, it'd be nice to be able to understand where our sun was born, in what part of the galaxy it was born, um, to understand its original environment and its neighbours, basically, at that time. Uh, if we were able to find planets around these other stars, the brothers and sisters of our sun, um, all of these planets would have formed in the same environment because the planets form at about the same time that the star does, a little while after. So these planets, we'd be, under, we'd be able to try to look at planetary formation that all occurs in the same environment, again, controlling for something and seeing how things vary due to other things. And then there's one last one, which is rather interesting. It is possible, it has been suggested, that there is a non-negligible chance, so it's possible, that life can actually travel from one planet to another by completely natural means. Collisions, comets smashing into things, all of this stuff being spread out across space. And we typically think of what's called panspermia, uh, the transfer of life from one place to another, um, as being confined to a solar system. But there is actually a chance that it could go further than that. So in other words, if you produce life on one solar system, in one solar system like ours, the probability of there being life in the nearby solar systems that formed at the same time goes up potentially quite a lot so, so and you we... said this is non-negligible i.e yeah. it's a real possibility it's a real possibility absolutely it's entirely possible that at least the building blocks of life if not the life itself could travel from one planet to another so maybe earth was the first planet and it and it spread its life to other places or maybe it life formed on a different planet and it spread the life to the earth basically what we're saying is because there's life here the chances of finding life in stars in our original solar neighbourhood goes up. This is really, really enlightening because we talk about exoplanets a lot and we talk about life on alien worlds, but actually, possibly the closer to home we are, the more likely we might it's, be it's of finding possible. it. It's entirely possible. It makes sense that if life can travel from one place to another, then nearby is where it's you should where be looking. looking. Yeah. So here's the question. Where are the sun's siblings i'm not gonna lie greg that question popped into my head when you started talking about <laughs> twins and broods of stars and I was, where's our neighboring stars then well it's a good question you see there are some problems with finding them stars aren't fixed they move around um all sorts of things can happen over the course of a star's life that changes its direction that changes where it uh, ends up uh that can be supernovae that cause all sorts of strange issues to stars. Uh, binary systems can have uh, one star explode, 
launching the rest of the system off into into deep space that can entirely happen has been uh, found to be the case in systems that have supernovae in them uh, you can have close encounters with other members of your family of your neighborhood or possibly with entire other neighborhoods so two clusters of stars passing by one another and even the very small but very real possibility of direct collisions between objects they're rare very rare but they do happen. So all of these things can break up the, the family of the sun. And it all sort of depends on how tightly bound your cluster of stars is as to whether it's going to stay that way. Globular clusters, which are some of the oldest groups of stars in our um, galaxy, can be nine or even older, billion years old. They tend to stay together. Because they are, they're quite heavy, there's lots of stars in them, and they're all really quite tightly bound. One of my favourite um, uh, facts about a globular cluster is if you were on a planet, on a star, uh, around a star in a globular cluster, the night sky would be as bright as the day. Wow. Because there are so many stars so close to you that they would be really bright, bright up during the, star, the, night. the sky. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. But... Globular clusters, they stay tightly bound, and so they can stay together for tens of millions of years, hence why there are still them around. Open clusters, on the other hand, they tend to break up in a few hundred million years. We've actually already mentioned one of them today, the Pleiades, which was mentioned in the, the diary that you talked about earlier. That is an open cluster of stars, was born maybe a hundred million years ago, and is still mostly together. But it won't stay that way. Those stars will eventually spread out into the rest of the galaxy. And stars can travel quite a long distance from where they began. The sun is four and a half billion years old, much older than the few hundred million years we would expect the open cluster to survive. So our sun is probably nowhere near its original neighbours. At least it's, the collection is not bound together anymore. Uh, yeah, so finding them, quite tough. And only a few candidates have actually been found so far. So this is where one particular search comes in. A search for the siblings of the sun using data from the um, AMBER project, which is a joint European Southern Observatory and Observatoire de la Côte d'Azur, uh, which I'm really hoping I pronounce correctly, <laughs> basically the Azur Coast, an observatory on the Azur Coast. Um, they, were, they are working together in order to analyse a huge back catalogue of spectra, the splitting of the colours of light out into its different components, and that have been taken by several instruments, most of them by the European Southern Observatory. By splitting the light out into these spectra, we can analyse their temperature of the stars, we can look at their composition, their age, we can even look at the motion with the Doppler shift that you were talking about earlier for radio signals. So we can try to understand more about these stars. And so far, this project has analysed 17,000 stars. So that's a fairly large sample of relatively nearby stars in order to be able to start looking for solar siblings. So we're looking for similarities between what we find from the splitting of light or the spectra of those stars and seeing if it matches what we see in our sun. Absolutely. But we need to thin the herd a bit. 17,000 is a that's large a number and there's probably only going to be a handful in there. So... The first thing we do is we eliminate all the very fast-moving stars. It is entirely possible that those stars could be part of our solar neighbourhood originally. 
but we've absolutely no way of being certain of that. Very fast-moving stars indicates that they've either come from somewhere else in the galaxy or they've been launched off by a binary star system flinging them away or a supernova or something along those sort of lines. So we ignore those ones for the most part. Uh, we also ignore stars which are heading in the wrong direction. Yes, these cluster, this cluster of stars may have been broken up, but they won't have all disappeared in completely different directions. They'll still roughly be travelling in the same direction. Right. So, although, again, it's not impossible that you could reverse the direction of a star, it will have happened. It's, it's more unlikely. likely. Sure, yeah, exactly. So it's get... more likely to find... At the very least, it'll be easier to argue that this star is a cousin or a sibling of our sun um, if there are traveling in the same direction at roughly the same speed. Um, they must be relatively close by. Again, it's unlikely to have made it across to the far side of the galaxy, and even if we did, even if it had, we couldn't measure it. So we look at nearby stars partly to make it easier for us to measure them, and partly because that's where we're likely to find solar neighborhood stars. Um, we check that the stars aren't already members of another cluster that we know to be much younger than ours. So the Pleiades, for example, we know we cannot have come from the Pleiades. Our sun is four and a half billion years old. That cluster is 100 million years old. There's no way that that can be part of our um, star's solar neighbourhood. Um, and then once we've done all of this, we've thinned the herd out and we've got maybe a handful, 100 or so, of uh, candidates. What we do is we compare the abundances of the elements in these stars, their temperatures, anything about them that might give us a hint about where and when they came from, in order to look for the similarities to our own sun. And we found one. Yay! Yes. Uh, in fact, we found potentially a fair few, but the most likely one uh, has the wonderfully memorable name HD eighteen uh, HD one eight six three zero two. It's a very likely candidate. It's a very similar age, similar kinematics, so it means it's travelling in the same sort of direction at the same sort of speed around the galaxy. In fact, it's actually about as identical as a star has ever been found to be to our sun. So if it's an if it isn't even the true twin of, of our sun, uh, it might as well be like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you know, much could closer. Be twins. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is basically this is a solar twin as best we can possibly tell. But we've there's only, always a but with yeah, you. Yeah, we've only identified a handful of stars out there as being solar siblings. So how many are actually left to find? Well, it's very difficult to say because, well, we haven't found them all. But we can try to take a guess at how many stars there were likely in our solar neighbourhood. The sun likely formed from a fairly sizable cloud. The way we know that is we know that the material inside our sun and in our solar neighbourhood um, had uh, an element in it which has a very short... Uh, lifespan. It's a radioactive element, has a very short lifespan, and that can only really have happened in a supernova, which means there must have been a supernova of one of our brothers or sisters after it formed. Mm -hmm. That only happens with big stars, at least 20 times the mass of our sun, potentially as high as 100 times the mass of our sun. So there must have been a lot of material for that star to have exactly, been created. Exactly, because very big stars are rare. So if there was only 21 solar masses of stuff out there, the chances of producing one that 20 one solar star. mass star <laughs> and our sun is practically zero. Instead, what you would end up is producing a lot of very small stars and no big stars at all. 
chances are at least. Um, so the cloud that our sun formed from was probably somewhere between 500 and 10,000 times the mass of our sun. It's huge. Pretty big. Um, and because most stars are solar mass or lower, that means that you will get a few hundred to a few thousand stars from each of those clouds. So this is a big family, potentially, that we're talking about. And yet we haven't found many of them. Where are they, Greg? It's a very good question. Um, there is light on the horizon. Maybe, uh, well, certainly, the greatly improved localization and the kinematics, the motions that we detect of stars provided by the Gaia satellite will definitely oh, yes. help. So this is the ongoing mission to chart 1% of the positions of all of the stars in our galaxy. And hopefully they will be able to provide the positions, the directions, the speeds of more stars for us to choose between. And we are also in the age of the multi-object spectrograph. This is a device capable of taking spectra of many, potentially hundreds or even thousands of stars at the same time uh, in order to observe them more efficiently. Uh, some spectrographs can only take a single spectrum at a time. And that would take a very, very long time. Very time consuming. Absolutely. But with robotic multi-object spectrographs, we can start to chart the entire sky in spectra and try to get a better handle on how many stars are similar to our, our own sun. But it just goes one. to show that family reunions aren't just tough in the human world. Finding your extended stellar family can be a real pain. Do you know what? I'm sort of glad I'm not a star because <laughs> I don't think I'd like to, to be roaming around wondering where the rest of my family is. But it sounds optimistic. We've got tools now that are going to help us more efficiently try and find the other siblings of our son, our lonely little son. Absolutely. But hopefully, yeah, fingers crossed, some more optimism over, yeah. the, over the horizon. Well, that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. We're going to put our stories to a poll on Twitter at the start of December. We're going to leave it open for about a week, so please do vote for your favourite story. Uh, on last month's news story, you talked about flaring red dwarf stars and about binary black holes too. And I'm really, really delighted, Greg, to say that I have finally picked a story that our listeners love. So 80% of you picked the binary black hole, leaving 20% for our flaring red dwarfs. But like we mentioned, please do get on to our Twitter poll for December's Look Up Stories. Um, we're also on iTunes. Uh, please search for Look Up. And if you enjoy listening, do rate us. We're also on SoundCloud with our Look Up podcast, but other podcasts that we also record here, which include our ThinkSpace lectures, where we interview some of the speakers that come in to do uh, talks for us. But that's pretty much it for this month. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you on next month's podcast for some more from Look Up. Mm -hmm.